Welcome to the Real Demons of Pop Culture. My name is James Ibliti, your guide through pop culture's underworld, unearthing the origins and eerie allure of pop culture's captivating demonic realm. You may know me as Dr. J, the TikTok famous demon hunter and knower of things. I'm going to take you back to 1981. I'm walking inside the local mall. And I enter the Walden Books, which no longer exist Walden Books. Used to love that store. And as soon as you walk in to the right, there was a magazine rack. And the Fangoria magazine that just came out was staring back at me. On the cover of the horror magazine, we have a man mid-transformation into a werewolf. The cover boasts an interview with makeup artist Rick Baker. So I pick up this magazine, I sit on the floor, and I'm flipping through the pages. The images are burnt into my 11-year-old brain. This is issue number 14 of Fangoria. And we're going to talk about an American werewolf in London and the story of werewolves. Coming to get you, Barbara. I'll swallow your soul! Welcome, everyone, to the Real Demons of Pop Culture. I know I'm a day late and a dollar short. I'm always a dollar short. And speaking of that, this is a listener-supported show. There's no commercials. You can head over to the show notes. There are many ways to support the show, including a tip jar. If you want to support the show in a different way, you can get the Real Demons of Pop Culture coloring book or the Demon Hunting or Ghost Hunting log book. You can get the new Bookworms Horror Zine that gets mailed to your house. Issue number two is available and number one. There's also merch and evil mugs. So go check all that stuff out in the show notes to support the show. It is time. For the magic number. I'm going to think of a number between 1 and 50. I'll count down. 3, 2, 1. There'll be some silence as I'm thinking of that number. You try to guess what that number is. Write it down at the end of the episode. I will reveal the number. Here we go. 3, 2, 1. All right. Write that number down. I'll reveal it at the end of the episode. An American Werewolf in London. There's a lot of werewolf movies. And by the way, I'm from Philly, so if I say werewolf or wolf, 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 right? Instead of wolf or however you're supposed to say it, that's just my Philly accent. Don't get upset with me. I get very sensitive about how I say wolf. Anyway, why did I pick American Werewolf in London? That story I talked about definitely is a reason that I picked that movie. Besides the fact, I think it's the greatest one. I love the transformations. Let's go back and how did John Landis come up with this film? Because John Landis, prior to An American Werewolf in London, did specifically comedies. His debut film was Schlock. That has a cult following. He then does the Kentucky Fried movie, Animal House, Blues Brothers. We definitely have a comedy director. But way before all these movies, John Landis was working on a film called Kelly's Heroes. He was in Yugoslavia. 
and he was a member of the crew. And as he was working on the film, they came across a group of Romani people. And they were performing some kind of ritual on a buried man so he would not rise from the grave. And that was the spark to an American werewolf in London. So he actually wrote the script in 1969, and it was 10 years later that he started making this film. So it was shelved for quite some time. Now, because of all those hits he had, he was able to get this film into production. The studio wanted Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as David Kessler and Jack Goodman in the film. But Landis said he wanted to go with unknown actors, which I thought was perfect. I don't think I would have. I don't know. I, I think that at this point, Aykroyd and Belushi were so well known that I think it would have taken away from the film. So it was said that the film was too gruesome to be a comedy, but too funny to be a horror film. And I think that's what works for me. There's a sort of reality to this because we have these two American guys, you know, walking around in Europe, backpacking, and it's just sort of how people are. You know, like, I think that when horror films are strictly horror and there's no comedy, that's not very real. Like, there's everybody's always trying to crack a joke in life. And there's no difference in this film. Like, they're just having fun. Even the gruesome parts have some funniness to it. And I think it just feels more real because of that. So if you don't know the film, I'm not going to spoil anything. But basically, these two American men are hiking through Europe. One of them gets attacked by an animal and is killed. The other one survives and wakes up in the hospital. And then everything kind of gets nuts from there. Lots of great special effects by Rick Baker, who I met at New York Comic Con and was the nicest, kindest person that I met probably in, you know, meeting celebrities. He didn't ask for money to get his autograph. He even was like, you don't want to buy my book right now because it's huge and it's heavy and you don't want to lug that around. Uh, he signed whatever I had, like it wasn't just one thing. I got uh, something signed for my friend who wasn't there. And he talked with each person for quite some time. Not enough that it would be annoying for you waiting in line, but enough that you're like, I'm glad he's doing this because he's going to invest that kind of time to me as well. Which I will bring up some of the things later about his sort of protege, Rob Botin. That will come up in a little bit. Something about the event when I walked into Walden Books and saw that Fangoria number 14 with the cover, it, it wasn't just the cover. When I opened it up, it had like the Nazi werewolves that were shooting people. And it was just sort of really cool looking special effects. I was thinking about this driving the other day because I knew when this episode was coming up. Why was Fangoria something I was looking for? And it all goes back to Star Wars. Star Wars was the movie that I, I saw and I was young. I mean, I'm like seven when I see Star Wars uh, or six going on seven. That started this entire fascination with movie magic and how 
Star Wars and then eventually Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and watching like the behind the scenes. How did they get the sound effects? How did they do the special effects, the monsters, the creatures, creature creation? And so I was highly aware of this field in filmmaking and fascinated by it. And Fangoria would reveal all that stuff that Tom Savini was doing and Rick Baker and Rob Bottin and all these special effects gurus. I mean, that was the magazine you would pick up. And that stayed with me. And I also feel like I can watch an American werewolf in London over and over and over and never get bored with that film. I just love it to death. I love the music, how it's used with stuff like Blue Moon and Bad Moon Rising, like really clever way to add music to this film. But that doesn't mean that there are not other films that I love. And we'll get into that during the list of pop culture werewolf stuff that's out there. Let's go back and talk about where did all this werewolf stuff get started anyway? So it's also called lycanthropy, if you don't know that. Lycanthrope, lycanthropy. I think it's lycanthropy or lycanthrope. But anyway, it all begins in Proto-Indo-European mythology. There were young, unmarried warrior men, sort of like a wolf cult. It was an initiation for this warrior class to go and wolf out. That is our earliest representation of a wolf man, but it's not the way we think of it today. A lot of the stuff we think about today is later. So in ancient Greek literature or folklore, we have a couple stories. Herodotus wrote his histories, and there was a tribe that would turn into wolves once a year. They would be all wolf-like for several days and then return to being human. In another tale, we have King Lycaon of Arcadia. Now, there's two versions of how he transformed into a wolf. One is that he sacrificed some kid on the altar of Zeus, Lycaeus, or he wasn't sure if Zeus, this visitor of him, was claiming to be a god. So he was like, I don't know if this guy's a god. So he served him entrails of someone he killed to see if Zeus was really a god. And this kind of pissed off Zeus. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to turn you into a wolf now. And that's how he transformed. There's Lycos of Athens, and Lycos of Athens was a wolf-shaped hero. Pliny the Elder also had a few tales. One was about this dude who would, like, swim across the marsh. He would join a pack of wolves for nine years. Then he would come back, swim back across the marsh, and return to being a human. He couldn't return to human form if he ate any human flesh during those nine years. So he had to kind of become a wolf run with the pack for nine years, don't kill anybody who are human, and then you can be a human again. When he turns into a human, though, he's still like, he physically is nine years older. I think that's kind of a sucky part of it. Like, if you're going to go and become a wolf for nine years and you don't kill any humans, you should still retain the age you were when you turned into a wolf. I think that's a kind of crappy deal there. Now, Virgil told a story about some guy who would eat herbs and poisons and then he would wolf out. This is one of my favorites. It's about this guy who basically gets naked. He piles his clothes on the side of the road and he pees in a circle around his clothes and poof, he turns into a werewolf. If anybody would like to give that a try, 
this is something we can scientifically prove if it works or not. You want to go out onto the road, get naked, pile your clothes on the road, pee in a circle around the clothes and let me know. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at James underscore Ippolitti. All that stuff is in the show notes. Or you can join the School of Dark Arts Facebook group. It's a free group and you can let us know how that works out for you. There was a man named Augustine of Hippo. This dude influenced medieval churches, the clergyman. He was a big influencer back in the day. Now, he was a Christian author, and he believed that there were certain witches' spells that could turn men into werewolves. So that is the ancient Greek time. Let's jump into the Middle Ages, because at this point, there is widespread belief in werewolves, to the point where there are medieval law codes that ensure that the madly audacious werewolf would not too wildly devastate nor bite too many of the spiritual flock. I've been talking a lot about werewolves and men turning into werewolves, and that's usually the case. You will hear maybe one example of a woman turning into a werewolf, but mostly women were thought of to transform into either cats or snakes. Now, in the Scandinavian Viking age, there was a Germanic pagan tradition associated with wolfmen. And I think this is how you pronounce it, and I love this word. Ufhednar. Ufhednar. It's U-L-F-H-E-D-N-A-R. Ufhednar, which literally translates to wolf-coated men. These were fighters like the berserkers. They would wear the hides of wolves. They would allegedly be able to channel the wolf spirit, and they felt no pain, and they were really, really vicious. Now, when we get to this time period... A lot of this werewolf stuff going on, like the Germanic werewolf, was associated with the witchcraft panic. So people were running around, you know, accusing people of being witches, burning witches at the stake. The werewolves kind of fell into that crazy panic that was going on. So being a werewolf was actually a common accusation that you would hear in a witch trial. Now, in Switzerland... Child-eating werewolves were reported as early as 1448. I mean, this is something that people seriously believed in. All right, let's talk about early modern history. So 16th century France was like a bad time to be a werewolf because there were so many reported attacks and trials getting people, you know, convicted of being a werewolf. For example... Giles Garner in Dole. This is 1573. This dude is convicted of being a werewolf. I mean, it's so weird to me that this is an actual case that happened and you were convicted of being a werewolf. So late 16th century, early 17th century, this is the peak time for werewolf activity. As I said earlier, the witch trials included, they, you know, they're going on at this time too. So we're seeing a lot of trials where werewolves are showing up. Now, about 1650, things start to die down. People are not buying into it as much. There still is, but lycanthropy, or lycanthropy, however you want to pronounce it, some people are saying it was a disorder of the brain or that it was just an illusion. But there were still werewolf sightings going on. I like this one. Sometime, this was in 1603, we have a teenage werewolf who was sentenced to life in prison. 
crazy teenage werewolf. This makes me laugh. So there was a boy who claimed that himself and his mother were both werewolves. But no one took that seriously. Imagine, everyone is running around yelling and screaming, witch, they're convicting people of being werewolves. And you come out and say that you and your mom are werewolves and they don't take you seriously. In a world where they are like jumping at any chance, who is this kid and mom that they're like, yeah, whatever, there's no way these kids, you know, you are like the most, like no one buys anything you're saying. If you're living in 16th, 17th century medieval Europe and they're like, yeah, we're not going to take that seriously. James the first of England is running around burning witches, but, but he thought werewolves, which he called war wolves, war probably was said like war wolves, but it's W-A-R-W-O-O-L-F-E-S instead of werewolves, war wolves. He basically said they were victims of delusion induced by, and I quote, a natural superabundance of melancholic. Like melancholy. That sounds so cool. I think you all should try to call out of work. Call up. Hey, what's going on? I can't come in today. I got a natural superabundance of melancholic. Give that a try. Let me know if that works for you. They won't even question you because it'd be so weird. They'll be like, okay, I, I think, I hope you get better. Even though around 1650 things start to die down, it doesn't mean that people still didn't believe in werewolves because that continued well into the 18th century. One guy claimed to not be guilty of murder because of his condition of being a werewolf. That's kind of like in the 70s, I heard like if you killed somebody because you were uh, drunk driving, you could get out of it because it wasn't your fault you were drunk. I don't know. I heard that. It could be not true, but I heard that was a thing. So like it's the same thing here. Like you could run around killing people and this guy's like, well, I'm not guilty. I was a werewolf. I guess if werewolves were a real thing, I guess you could use that as a defense. It sounds like maybe he has a medical condition. We're going to talk about that in just a bit. Wolves were the most feared predator in Europe, and that's why it became part of this shape-shifting myth. But what about places that wolves did not exist? Well, guess what? They had similar legends around this. So let's give you a couple. If you were living in Africa, you would have were-hyenas. If you were living in India, wear tigers. And if you were in the southern part of South America, we could have wear pumas or wear jaguars. What would be in America? Wear raccoons? Wear opossums? Either find me on Instagram or the School of Dark Arts. Let me know what your country would have. Would they have werewolves or maybe something else like wear kangaroos? Let me know. So there are some famous cases. There's this one guy named Peter Stump. I heard his name's really like Peter Griswold, and he got the name Stump because he was missing his left hand, like he must have been cut off. And that's pretty awful, these people back then, finding like the one thing that you're probably not very happy about and then naming you after that. It's kind of crappy, I think. But anyway, this dude lived from like 1535 to 1589. There was a 16-page pamphlet published in London in 1590. It was a translation of a German pamphlet. The German one has nothing left of it. Like, there's no surviving text or paper of that. But the English one, there are two copies that exist. One is in the British Museum. One is in the Lambeth 
library. There was a occultist. Maybe I'll have to do an uh, episode on this guy. Montague Summers, who basically found those two copies. The thing with his hand being cut off, some people allege that the werewolf like had its left forepaw cut off, which then that means the same injury was on the man. So when he transformed, because we saw the wolf and it was missing its left paw, he confesses, but he confesses after being tortured. He's being stretched on a rack. He keeps getting tortured. And eventually he confesses to practicing black magic since he was 12, claims that the devil gave him magical belt, which enabled him to transform into this awful monster of a werewolf. Honestly, who knows if he was a werewolf? Maybe he was killing people. We don't really have enough evidence, but we do have evidence that he was accused, convicted, and executed for being a werewolf. He's also known as the werewolf of Bedburg. There's a couple songs that come to mind. One, obviously, is Ow, Werewolf of Bedburg. Ow. Then there's um, Bonzo Goes to Bitburg by the Ramones. We could say werewolf. No, it won't really work with the rhythm. The werewolf of Bedburg goes down for a cup of tea. Nah, I don't know if that'll work. Now, in Asian cultures, there were some Turkic Asian shamans, but this wasn't like they were these werewolves that would go and eat you. They were respected. So these shamans could turn themselves into a wolfman. Kind of cool to chill with. So I wouldn't worry about them. Let's talk about the medical condition. Because I brought this up that there was a guy earlier who claimed he was not guilty because of his condition of being a werewolf. A lot of these are kind of debunked, but we'll talk about them. Some explanations include that the victims of congenital porphyria if you have congenital porphyria, you're, you have photosensitivity, reddish teeth, psychosis. But the debate is these reports are of wolves, not people with red teeth or photosensitivity. And it's like, like they're, they're seeing wolves kill people. They're not seeing a guy who might have a skin condition or something like that. Speaking of that, there is hypertrichosis. Think of the wolf boy. You ever see the pictures of the wolf boy? That's like you have excessive hair growth, like your face is just covered in hair. But that is such a rare thing that no one suspects that's what it was. This one, I haven't found any explanation, but if you had Down syndrome, people were saying that that's maybe what people were accusing people of being werewolves because they had Down syndrome. I don't get that. But I'm sure Down syndrome was not looked upon. Uh, as anything but some kind of devilish thing back in those days. So maybe that's why. Now, rabies, that could be something. If you got rabies, the symptoms could be definitely reasons why you might go nuts and start biting people. However, being bit by a werewolf and then turning into a werewolf yourself, that's a modern invention. And so the idea that you have rabies and you bite somebody and they get rabies as well like that's what they're saying like the werewolf bite turns you into a werewolf it doesn't jive with the way we thought of things back then they weren't turning people into werewolves they were just de devouring people now the belief in werewolves is not uniform like depending on where you're from sometimes the transformation into a werewolf could be temporary or it could be permanent a werewolf could be a man who actually transforms. It could be his double, like there's this double going around doing it. 
Uh, it could be his soul. So his body's in a trance, kind of like um, astral projection type thing. It could be that. It could be his soul running around killing people. Or it could be a messenger or like a real animal, a familiar spirit. So you could have some kind of control over these things and send them out to do your bidding. Kind of like Snow White. She could probably get all her birds to go attack people like Alfred Hitchcock's birds. Maybe she started it all. Back then in, in the European folklore, if you had any of these traits, you could be a werewolf. Sounds like that book. You may be a werewolf if you have a unibrow. All right, so watch out for those guys with unibrows. Curved fingernails, that's another sign you may be a werewolf. Perhaps you have a swinging stride. Well, guess what? You may be a werewolf. If you are cut and we can see fur underneath your flesh, guess what? You could be a werewolf. In Russia, they would look under your tongue, and if you had bristles under the tongue, you might be a werewolf. But a common belief werewolves uh, was that they would devour recently buried corpses. Now, when people talked about werewolves, they looked like real wolves, but they did not have a tail. And witches, apparently, if they turn into animals, they don't have tails either. But werewolves are larger than the regular wolves. They usually have human eyes, and they have a voice. Now, the Swedish claim that the werewolves run on three legs, and the fourth leg sticks out in the back, so it looks like a tail, which I think that's a, a funny visual in my head. And it's animated like a cartoon for some reason. But I, I think that's cute. Now, how do you become a werewolf? I like this first one. You want to become a werewolf? Just get naked and put on a belt made of wolf skin. Again, give it a try. Let me know how that works out for you. You can rub your body with a magic salve, and then that will turn you into a werewolf. You could also drink rainwater out of a footprint of whatever animal you want to transform into. You could also go to an enchanted stream and drink that water, and that should turn you into a werewolf. There's also, you could prepare like a special beer formula and then you drain that cup. That can turn you into a werewolf. And of course, there's incantations. They will work too. In Italy, France, and Germany, either a man or a woman, on a certain Wednesday or Friday, and they sleep outside on a summer night with the full moon shining directly on their face, werewolf. That's what'll happen. Of course, the Christians say that an allegiance to Satan is how you can become a werewolf. And another one, let's say you're part of the Catholic Church and you get excommunicated, that also has been said to turn you into a werewolf. Now, in 1692, we have another real-life situation where there was a man named Thies, T-H-I-E-S-S. Now, he claims that him and some other werewolves, which he called them the Hounds of God, they would turn into werewolves, and they would go into hell, and they would battle witches and demons. And this was to prevent, like, any demons or their minions to jump up into our world and steal any crops that might have not gone well that year. I don't know. It's something to do with farming. 
And so he felt him and his friends who were all werewolves, the hounds of God, would go to hell and battle witches and demons to prevent any kind of farming thievery. Now, the sad part is this guy, Thies, was in his 80s. Let's say he was at least 80 years old. Well, he gets convicted and they basically sentence him for like to 10 lashes. That's what I got here. I got 10 lashes, which basically means being whipped. Some accounts just say he's um, he is whipped. They don't tell you how many times, but let's say even 10. Think of your grandfather or anybody you know that's like 80 years old. Imagine them getting whipped. That's insane. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, you stupid little punk kids whipping me. I'm just an old man. All right, what's the remedy? If you go to CBS, the ancient Greeks and Romans would make you exhausted. They wouldn't give you any medicine. They would make you exhausted. So they would have you run around and basically like tire you out. And that would cure you of being a werewolf. And the reason why is there are claims that like when you woofed out, that when you became human again, you were so exhausted the Greeks and Romans thought, well, if that's what it takes, we need to exhaust this person and they won't become a werewolf. You go into medieval Europe CVS and they have a couple ideas. Definitely the medieval Europe CVS would give you some kind of medicine and it would be wolf's bane. They also may suggest surgery or exorcism. However, the pharmacist in medieval Europe would probably kill you because it's most often fatal. Now, this one's a pretty simple cure, you can actually strike a werewolf on the forehead or scalp with a knife. And guess what? You're cured. That's the one I like. They don't cut you. They just kind of smack you. It's like a little smack on the head. This one I wouldn't want. They would pierce the werewolf hands with nails. Now, when they say that, they don't mean they're actually piercing a dog type werewolf. They're talking about the human. They're going to nail, put nails into your hands. I'm sure there's some crucifixion connection there. This one's even easier than being smacked on the head. All you have to do is say their God-given name three times in a row. You'd be like, James, 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 I'm now cured. The next one is you can scold the werewolf. Bad dog. Well, we wouldn't say dog, he's kind of a werewolf. Bad werewolf. Bad werewolf. And that would actually, bad werewolf. That would actually cure you. And finally, if you convert to Christianity and have devotion to St. Hubert, no longer a werewolf. That's the meat of the history of the werewolf. Now, when we talk about pop culture, the first thing that comes to my mind is Lon Chaney's werewolf from Universal Monsters. Remember, that's really early in Hollywood history. And the way they did the transformation was they had Lon Chaney sit in a chair. Then they would slowly add the werewolf makeup to him until he was fully woofed out. That was a very long process. It was kind of like they just fade everything from one to the other and he had to sit in that chair for the whole time. The character is Larry Talbot and you feel bad for him. Now he's cursed, we didn't really talk about that and we didn't talk about the full moon really. But a lot of this stuff that we know, the silver bullet, the full moon, the curses uh, come from the pop culture part of werewolves. The Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr., that's 1940s. Teen Wolf, remember that one? That was Michael J. Fox. And he inherits the uh, werewolf from his father, Scott Howard's father. 
Teen Wolf is really not, I don't really think it's that good. My wife loves Teen Wolf and she had us all watch it, the kids and I, and they were like, this is awful. But I don't know. There's something that we love about it because it's from our youth. We talked about American Werewolf in London. There are werewolves in Underworld. There are werewolves in um, Twilight. There's also The Howling, which I'm going to talk about in a second. That's a Joe Dante film, which uh, probably would be maybe my third favorite, because I would say Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. might be my second favorite. But they come up anytime you have like shows like Supernatural, The Vampire Diaries. Uh, there are a lot of werewolf stories, and we're going to get into Buffy in a second, because, of course, Buffy did that. And Marvel did Werewolf by Night, which that, I thought, was so good on Disney+, Plus. if you haven't watched it. I love that everything was in black and white. It had a retro feel. Excellent, excellent werewolf thing going on. If you have a favorite werewolf movie, TV show, comic, book, anything, find me on Instagram at James underscore Ippolitti or go to the School of Dark Arts Facebook group. All this stuff is in the show notes. Let me know. I would love to know what your number one werewolf pop culture thing is. And now it's time for Buffy Did That. Hello, I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and yes, Dr. J is correct. I did do this. Okay, this is a big one for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was season two, episode 15, and it's called Phases. And basically, Cordelia and Xander, they're attacked by a werewolf that rips a hole in the car's roof. Giles points out there that there have been a lot of attacks, but they were only animals at this point. Now, Larry, who's like the macho dude, the football player, like he got bit by a dog. Xander thinks that Larry is the werewolf so he approaches him in the gym locker room and the way the conversation goes larry comes out as gay and thinks that xander's also secretly gay it's a really funny scene the truth is that oz was the werewolf and oz at this point in buffy is dating or at least they're starting to date uh willow and oz willow eventually comes out as gay and so that oz relationship doesn't last and oz eventually meets a werewolf girl and they kind of run off together a great episode nonetheless check it out the episode's phases episode 15 of season two of buffy the vampire slayer all right let's jump into some trivia of an american werewolf in london the first one is that American Werewolf in London was the first film to ever win an Oscar for Best Makeup. I love this story because the reason why is because the year before, David Lynch's Elephant Man was obviously Oscar winning, but they didn't have a category for makeup, and the makeup was so amazing in The Elephant Man. And it was because they didn't have that, they realized they really needed a makeup effects category. And so they created one. And the next year, Rick Baker and his team win the Oscar for best makeup and well-deserved. The main character, David Kessler in the movie was played by David Naughton. And David Naughton got the role because he was in Dr. Pepper commercials and John Landis actually saw those commercials and that's how he got the role. Very weird trivia, but 
You can look those up too. You can look up David Naughton, Dr. Pepper on YouTube and they're corny, very corny. Rick Baker had a couple of things happen when it came to filmmaking. One was he was going to work on E.T. with Spielberg, but it was called Dark Skies at the time. And Rick Baker did do some preliminary aliens, which I think were too creepy uh, for Spielberg because Spielberg eventually wanted to have sort of a, a nice alien. And that's how we got E.T. And by the time Spielberg was ready to do E.T., Rick Baker was already deep in with uh, an American World for London and passed on working with Spielberg. And I think it was a good choice. I don't think Rick Baker would have been able to give the E.T. that Spielberg wanted. It would have been a different movie, but I think I would have liked the E.T. Rick Baker version than the one they actually did. Rick Baker also was going to work on The Howling with Joe Dante. And Landis kind of got pissed. He thought he was leaking secrets. Eventually, Rob Bottin worked on The Howling. And some people were saying there were similar things and that, you know, uh, Landis was upset that the tricks that were being used in American Werewolf were leaked to The Howling. However, Rob Bottin is a student of Baker. Like, he, he was under his tutelage. So it's no accident that Botine would have similar techniques that Rick Baker had. Botine is amazing. I mean, he did the thing, but he disappeared. And my friend Chris and I always talk about putting together either a podcast or a documentary of where is Rob Botine. And when I, I brought this up earlier, but when I met Rick Baker and I brought up Rob Botine, I could see this hurt. Like I almost felt bad asking the question because he hasn't seen him and they must've been really close and it's been a long time and nobody kind of knows what happened and why he got out of all this. You do know, let me know. I said earlier that Aykroyd and Belushi were supposed to be in an American Werewolf in London. Luckily they were out there making Neighbors, which is a really weird movie. I don't know if I like Neighbors or not. There's sometimes I like it and sometimes I'm like, eh, there's something missing. It's a very weird movie, but I'm so glad that they weren't in An American Werewolf in London. Because of An American Werewolf in London, Michael Jackson wanted Rick Baker for the Thriller video. Uh, I don't think you understand, unless you were there, how big Michael Jackson's Thriller video event was. So John Landis directed that video. Rick Baker does the work. It was an event it's also the 80s, so like because it's the 80s, they have that opening thing that says, this is not like satanic. I forget what it exactly says, but it's basically just warning like, no, Michael Jackson doesn't worship the devil. It was a huge entertainment event. I still love Thriller, the song and the video and the effects and all that stuff. And it was just this amazing event that came together with some wonderful talent. So... Go check out Michael Jackson's thriller, the video, the long version, if you haven't seen it. And finally, John Landis and Rick Baker both show up in An American Werewolf in London. Landis appears towards the end, and he's like a man who is thrown through a window after being hit by a car. And Rick Baker, I think he had the better part because he was one of the Nazi werewolves during David's Nightmare. So he plays the Nazi werewolf who cuts David's throat open which I think that might have been in the Fangoria magazine too. 
if I remember correctly. What I love about Fangoria is you can actually go to Fangoria's website and go to the archives and you can go through number 14 and look through the whole magazine. Like you don't have to buy it. It's a free thing to look through their archives, which is super cool. So happy they do that. However, they just released, like, I guess they were reprints and I went on there and I was too late and number 14 was sold out. Damn it. So there you have it. An American werewolf in London and the story of werewolves. And now it's time to reveal the magic number. The magic number is two. I feel like that was a good one to do. Um, feels tricky. But if you got it, please let me know on Instagram or the School of Dark Arts. Let me know if you got it because you know what happens. I didn't say this in the beginning. If you get it right, you have an extra special magical day. If you don't, you still have a good day, but it's not magical. I don't make it up. Frankenstein does. All right, I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Please find me on my links in the show notes. Please support the show so we can keep going. And also find me on Instagram and School of Dark Arts and let me know all the things we talked about today, what your favorite was. All right, peace. Be sure to follow me on TikTok at James Ippolitti. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. The Real Demons of Pop Culture is a Gorilla Delphia production.